Hey, hey, everyone. It's Nicholas Lorimer here, joined by my co-host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are you? Good, man. Happy Sunday. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, and happy Sunday to you too, sir. Uh, so we've managed to do our two crickets recording on a weekend, which shows that we're at the peak of uh, organizational prowess. And um, yeah, no, it's 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 been a pretty uh, mixed weekend for me. I've had a very good time, but um, unfortunately, a uh, a friend of mine, his 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 dad passed away from COVID, um, which is quite. He was a really good guy, so it's it's a real shame. Um, how's your weekend been, Gabriel? Yeah, Nick. Uh, my condolences. Uh, my my weekend has been uh, lovely. Very quiet. Yesterday, I went for a walk in the park uh, with the dogs and visited my mum in the park. She's being very careful about the virus. Gauteng being in peak, totally avoiding contact. Uh, and other than that. Yeah, just reading, uh, continuing to read uh, Claudius the God and uh, and Anthea Jeffries BE helping or hurting, uh, taking it easy. Sounds like the perfect literary diet there that you've got. Um, <laughs> right, now, now you insisted that we speak about uh, a chap called Diocletian. Um, now, we did a pub quiz the other night where I was the quiz master and... Uh, I thought it would be all right to ask the audience who Diocletian was. Because I thought, ah, you know, it's a hard question, but there'll be like one person who's read about him before. Uh, but no one had. Uh, which is, yeah. Which is well, which, yeah, carry on. So I had heard of him, I think, um, and, and recited him uh, in reference to this uh, uh, interview between Peter Robinson, who does Uncommon Knowledge. Stanford's Hoover Institute, and Victor Davis Hansen, who's the uh, historian of the Hoover Institute, yeah, where he yeah. said, you know, what kind of moment is America going through? Is it going through more of a, a Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar moment, sort of a bit of a civil war, but consolidate the empire now through compromising some democratic norms? Uh, or is it going through more, I think, Justinian was the one, like kind of last emperor last when it gasp, was yeah. last gasp and was looking at the collapse and i think victor davis hansen's answer was like well i'm going to cheat and go with neither and say it's looking more like diocletian to me uh uh and 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 the, and the reason i'm pretty sure that this is the one is because then nick i, I didn't get the answer right in the pub quiz because i'm uh, no one did <laughs> no one did no one knows <laughs> Because of the Baldwin number, the Baldwin number is the number of times you have to try a thing over and over again before you get the skill. And my Baldwin number is pretty high uh, on this, apparently. I needed to hear it a few times. But Nick helped me out with that because he wrote a piece on The Daily Friend. He writes a weekly uh, column that everyone should read. It's it's really delightful. Um, called This Week in History, uh, where he gives, it's not just like short little factoids. It's like, you know, a couple of substantial stories, enough to hook you that just happened to have happened in this week in history. And he spoke about uh, Diocletian in that. And, I, and so I read up and then I was like, ah, I should have got it. Yeah. But, so so shall I tell a little bit about this guy's history and then you take us from there? I mean, I think you'll be, I think honestly, you'll do a better job of just. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, sure. Go ahead and and uh, I'll, I'll add chip in where, where I think is it's important. 
Okay, so this is the student trying to remember. So he's born in 284, and he's born into no, no, a time no, no. when the Roman Empire... I, yeah. I think he's. I think he assumes his throne in 284. See, I'm already making mistakes. Um, but he, he comes up at a time when the Roman Empire has been around for a thousand years, uh, but for the last couple of hundred years, it's been... Uh, an empire, both in the sense that it's vastly expanded its borders beyond where they originally were, and also imperial in the sense that the republic has been uh, sort of gutted, and it's really authoritarian rule. Yeah, it's and basically the, been a military dictatorship for the last hundred years, and it's been in total chaos. There's something like uh, an average of one and a half emperors a year for the last couple of decades. So it's like Switzerland in the sense that they have a, a new bunch of leaders every year. But it's not like Switzerland. And it's also like Switzerland in the sense that everyone's armed, but it's not like Switzerland in the sense that it it's, it's not very stable. Um, but the system that they have is you is this already you've got the kind of two rulers, you've got the two August yeah, Augustuses so, so what, and the, the two problem, Caesars under them. The basic problem is something like this. The army... Uh, the army has become the most important part of society. It rules everything. It determines who's in charge. Um, and whoever controls the army is the ruler. But the empire is very big. So you need the army in more than one place, which means you need to have more than one army. And the problem is anytime anyone has an army, they get themselves declared emperor. And then there's a civil war. So this guy Diocletian, right, he comes to the throne um, the empire almost just collapsed a few a few years ago from uh, two parts of it tried to split off in the east and in the west. Diocletian's uh, mentor is a guy called Aurelian, and he reunites the empire, but then he's murdered. And so it looks like the whole cycle of civil war is about to kick off again. Diocletian manages to grasp uh, control of the empire. And he's like, right, this is too disorganized. We need to organize it so that we have two emperors permanently so that we have two armies, one defending the West and one defending the East. And then we need to make sure that we all know who their successors are. So we'll put uh, a guy in, uh, two guys in underneath them who will take over from them who are called Caesars. Um, so they just took the names basically of the previous successful rulers of Rome uh, and made them into titles. So instead of emperor, you would have two Augustuses. Uh, I don't actually know what the plural of Augustus is, but there you go. And uh, <laughs> you would have two Caesars underneath them. So this was an attempt basically to stabilize everything and kind of bring some order back to the empire. Um, and Diocletian was pretty successful at first. Uh, am I leaving anything out, Gabriel? No, that sounds right. That sounds right. like it's hitting the key points that I remember. So the system kind of works for a little while. It, a lot of it is actually held together by Diocletian's uh, force of personality. Um, it's still, these two emperors are actually not equal. There's one who's senior, and of course Diocletian is the senior one. Um, and he's got a buddy called uh, Maximilian, I think it is. And they they work together pretty well, and Diocletian decides that the masterstroke of his whole system will be that he'll retire rather than dying in office, so that he can make sure that everything goes smoothly. And he'll get his colleague, the other co-emperor, to retire alongside him he so is. that their Caesars can rise up and take the position that they used to hold. So he does this. Yeah, exactly. He does this. He retires to 
a massive palace, which is in Croatia on the Dalmatian coast. It's still there today. You can go see it. It's pretty cool. I haven't seen it myself, but it looks cool. Um, and everything looks all right for about five minutes when none of the people he appointed do what he told them to do, and they all start fighting amongst themselves. And a couple of years later, people start clamoring for his return, and they ask him to come back to the throne, and he says, uh, no, I'm having much more fun growing cabbages over here. This is too stressful. And then he dies a couple of years after that. Mm. Um, and he really did say that he was having fun growing cabbages. <laughs> so, I mean... I can a man see of, the appeal. I've been yeah, to farms. No. He was one of the... He was the only emperor in Roman history to retire from the job, basically. Uh, and he was the only one who got to see the total demise of his plans while he was still alive. <laughs> yeah. Great gifts. Um, one of the other things he tried to do... So he was a guy who was very big on order. Order and stability. Now, because of the armies roving around the empire for the past couple of decades, uh, every time a new emperor came to the throne, he had to give what was called a donative to the troops to secure their support. This is one of the reasons the, the soldiers keep, kept murdering their emperors, because they get a massive, like, four times their yearly wage uh, bonus every time a new emperor came to the throne. Yeah. Now, there wasn't enough and, money and, for this. Just by the way, so our rule with talking about history is that we never make analogies uh, to contemporary situations. And the analogy that you've got to be careful of making is uh, with people burning things down uh, in South Africa in particular, uh, where, for example, I was in Mashadadorp where I asked people, why is everyone okay with the fact that a bunch of people just came down from Polokwane wearing red berets and are claiming political victory over the burning down? I took photographs of the fire station because that's the number one thing to burn down uh, that we talked about last week. Also the police station, also the clinic, also the school, also uh, uh, one of the bottle stores. And they were like, well, the thing you have to understand is that that stuff's all going to have to be rebuilt, all the government stuff. And they have to use local uh, construction workers. So we're going to get a lot of jobs out of this. So, yeah, it's actually a good thing. It's, uh, it's very sort of rudimentary Keynesian type of economics, you know, the circular yes. flow of money, getting that savings working. Indeed. Anyway. So, so the, the, because of this, um, this, this constant need to pay the soldiers more and more and more, uh, they had to inflate the currency in order to pay for it. Right. Now the Romans didn't really understand economics. So they were, but they kind of knew the value of sound money. So they reduced the silver content in the money all the time. And as a result, by this point in the empire, inflation was utterly out of control. It was complete mess. And so Diocletian, one of his great projects was, and this was a great boon for archaeologists, because we now know about a whole bunch of stuff that the Romans consumed. Mm. Uh, but he drew up a list of basically everything he thought was an important good in the country. And he said, right, here's the minimum price that you're allowed to ask for, and here's the maximum price. And anyone who disobeys will be killed. And he sort of decided upon this kind of arbitrarily based on what he thought was important. Uh, so very, he is one of the world's great first communist price fixes as well, actually. And completely expectedly, this really didn't work very well. And within a few months, the whole thing had kind of just collapsed because despite the guess, fact... It created a bit of a black market. You know, uh, exactly. Mistrust in the rule of law... Corruption, I, bribery. 
I don't know how you guessed that, Gabriel. It's it's it's. I'm just trying. Uncanny. I'm trying hard not to make analogies to what we're going through right now. So I'm just not going to actually. I'm just going to say that I drew it out of out of uh, a, a, a packet of cigarettes that I smoked in inspiration. <laughs> That's very good. So yeah, that was a complete failure, and everyone basically disobeyed it, unless it was like right next to him. Um, in the town that he was, he happened to be staying in at the time, and yeah. the whole project was quietly shelved in in shame um, because it threatened the majesty of the emperor's programs. So, an organizer guy, an interesting guy, um, and ultimately his neat little system of how to manage succession, the empire fell apart very quickly, uh, and he was su- succeeded at with uh, I'm skipping a whole bunch of steps here, but he su- succeeded eventually by a guy called Constantine. Who legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire and changed the course of world history, um, which is one of the, which, which is how most people get to know about Diocletian. So, Gabriel, you said you had some thoughts on this whole thing. What? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the thoughts uh, that sort of echoes across um, to the book that I've been reading, uh, Claudius the God, by sort of history by Robert Graves, uh, historical fiction, is that. Uh, he's, he, Graves notices that uh, ever, ever since Caesar, ever since Julius Caesar, uh, Roman emperors tended to uh, behave in a way that I think strikes us as first as ironic. So they, they wouldn't, uh, they'd say, I don't want to be emperor, and the senators would have to beg them to be emperor. And as soon as they became emperor, they'd say, I'm just going to do this for a little bit. I'm going to retire as soon as possible. So Augustus Caesar does this. Tiberius Caesar does this. Uh, then comes Caligula, little little boot, uh, who who doesn't, he, he, he doesn't really do that in the same way. He declares himself a god, um, happens to be sort of just at the same time as Jesus. Uh, um, and, and he's a bit difference but he's he, he becomes very unpopular very quickly uh and gets assassinated by these soldiers by these german roman soldiers who then are like okay well we've done the assassination now what we need an emperor uh we don't want a republic uh some of the assassins were republicans and they're like no 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 you guys don't get it we want an emperor uh and so they decided to put claudius on their on their shoulders uh, despite the fact that he's sort of a stammerer, that he's physically deformed, that he's like... He, he, has, a, totally, he has a reputation of being an idiot. Yeah. Uh, they're like, whatever. We, we don't need an intelligent emperor. We just need an emperor. Um, and so that's how he comes to power. And and Graves is reading of history. And obviously he is doing a sort of... Uh, I think he's going beyond what you can prove without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, because he's reading into motives. His reading is that Claudius is very sincere in his Republican virtues. And that uh, that's part of the reason that he sort of survived in his family is that everyone suspected he was an idiot. So everyone else got assassinated. Uh, but he survived because he wasn't seen to be a threat. But that also part of the reason Graves has this understanding is because Claudius himself was a historian. And was studying the history of Rome going back 900, 800 years before that, uh, which is how long Rome had already been around. And of 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 other uh, societies and that he and that and 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 claudius finds i'm sorry graves finds in the way that he writes about things and, and his commentaries uh that there's that there's strong reason to believe that he's a real republican so claudius becomes a very uh, effective emperor uh 
colonizes the UK, which is the furthest that they expand in that direction, um, establishes a port uh, close to Rome, which which is the major sort of uh, uh, engineering feat of the time and really changes the, the balance of forces in terms of importing grain from Egypt and, and their ability to be throttled by uh, major ports further east. Um, he expands further east uh, and he also uh, constructs the largest aqueduct coming into Rome. So he does a lot of, you know, great infrastructure projects. <clears throat> Aqueducts, yeah. which uh, just to tie a little neat bow in this, uh, are cut by Justinian's troops centuries later when he tries to retake the city from the Goths. Uh, rubbishes, hey? The fallists. When the when the Romans become the fallists and they break their own stuff, it does happen. But so but so the, so the, so the irony is that Claudius is now sort of he's done his major project. He's he's secured stability. He's gotten over the nightmare of Caligula the god. Um, and and he and he, and now he wants to retire and 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 also by the way I suppose one of the biggest reforms is that Claudius acts as judge as emperors had the right to do, and he uses that to really go after a lot of nefarious practices both by justices, legislators, and by lawyers. And so Graves cites some sort of surviving advertisements from lawyers at the time, like, you know, come to this, come to Telecomunesis or whatever his name was. Uh, we will teach you all the lines you have to say. We'll tell you like when you have to cry, when you have to laugh, uh, uh, when you have to flatter. There's, you know, it's a total theatrical spectacle. And Claudius is it, uh, not and, into and that. Like it's such a public thing, court uh, going to court in Rome, right? Because anyone can just show up to the to the court. That children in the streets literally play at being in court. Yeah, like we play cops and robbers and whatever, and like Iron Man and Superman, they play it like. So it is a complete joke, and he spends a lot of time in the court, and 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 he's got. I mean, some of his phrases. One of his phrases uh, that's survived through time. There, there are quite a few. I can't remember all of them. One of them is. Uh, I will judge you without fear or phobia. Sorry, without phobia or favor, which we now translate as without fear or favor. Uh, but then he says, look, I'm looking for the truth, but I, I will admit a bit of a bias. If you make your, the more succinctly you make your argument, the more likely I am to be persuaded by it. And if you use long flowery sentences, then I'm most likely to just dismiss your case. So I would probably be no good as a lawyer in his uh, system. But I, no, you'd I think be closed. It is, <laughs> but I think it is a good reform. Anyway, so he, he does all these good things, sets up a stable room, and then tries to hand it over to the to to the Senate. And then it all goes pear shaped. Uh, and and so I just it just, reading that story uh, gave me this idea that that the Diocletian story echoed with uh, about South Africa's particular predicament, which is that from 2018, from, from 2017 actually, from the moment at Nazareth that Ramaphosa accepted the nomination to be president of the ANC and then made his grand speech where he said, here's my signature policy, it's going to be expropriation without compensation. You had two camps stand up, one camp saying, you know, he, he means it, the National Democratic Revolution is finally going to come to bear, and then another camp that said, no, he doesn't mean it, this is just a strategic feint, he's just throwing meat, red meat to his base. Um, to to sucker a bit of unity for now, but he's going to quickly leverage uh, the, the 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 powers of the state to root out the corrupt from the ANC, from SOEs, from the civil service, and from 
uh, all branches of power. And and once that's happened, he, he will defer to a group of experts who, who will say that this is not going to help and actually it'll hurt and it'd be much better to just give people the title deeds and stop paying more for VIP security for the government than for uh, land restitution. Uh, and those two camps seem to be having a genuine disagreement to many. Uh, but to me, from the very beginning, it seemed like the like they were having a very genuine disagreement within a very narrow Overton window about the realm of possibility. And I was coming from an American point of view, sort of that's where I studied at university, that informs a lot of my understanding of politics, also because America's the oldest sort of vibrant uh, constitutional democracy in, in many yeah. ways. Uh, and, 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 the, and the, you know, anyone who knows anything about American politics knows the thought that uh, the most important time in a presidential in a, in a president's career is his first 100 days. Because that's when you really have the political will at your back, everyone's enthused by you, you've just won a majority vote. And so I thought, if Ramaphosa's not putting down really stupid ideas like EWC in his first 100 days, but is in fact driving them up, then this is not gonna work. And the best case scenario that you guys are hoping for is that Ramaphosa becomes an emperor. Uh, much like Paul Kagame. So Paul Kagame would, is, becomes the, the ceiling of the most you could hope for. And Paul, he's the president of Rwanda, and I think Kagame is actually quite yeah. great and, and does come out of a very different circumstance. But he, is, but he is also not, not. let's just say that we wouldn't like him very much if he was in South Africa. So him taking over Rwanda is one thing, a country that's riven by civil war and it just had a genocide and has you know yeah. big conflicts all around it. But he's a brutal, brutal guy, and he's yeah. not. Yeah, he's 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 very much a kind of best of the bad situations kind. kind well, of guy. so the thing with Kagami, you know, the the, the problem with Kagami is, and I've I've seen the Rwandese have tried to uh, push literally people in the leading uh, political party out of the political party. Say like, guys, make your own political party. The biggest problem with Kagami is that he's irreplaceable. That without him, it all falls apart. Um, and partly maybe that's his fault, but a lot of it's not his fault. But like in our system, we've got a system where it doesn't have to be like that, uh, but it could be like that. And, and, and it just took me back to high school where our headmaster, Mr. Knowles, who was your headmaster too for, for all of your career, um, his favorite writer was Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People and, and so on. And Stephen Covey's best line, which which Mr. Knowles reiterated when we were schoolboys, was uh, the the ultimate test of success for a leader is if you can leave and the wheels on the bus still keep turning. So it was like the first thing you want to do yeah. in the bus is make sure you've got the right people on the bus. Then you want to make sure the people are sitting in the right seats in the bus. But the ultimate test is you want to be able to get off the bus and it keeps driving in the right direction. And from the start, it seemed like we were setting ourselves up where the best case scenario is that Ramaphosa becomes irreplaceable. And that's more and more where we're sitting. Yeah, and, and that's that that, uh, that maps, of course, as you point out uh, very nicely with the, although we shouldn't be making historical analogies, with Diocletian. Um, one of the other things that's notable about Diocletian's reign is how it's usually described by historians as the beginning of what they call the dominate or the lordship. And so <clears throat> what had used to happen in Roman politics was emperors were effectively unchallenged in the beginning. Augustus had no one. He was, a, he was an absolute ruler. But he covered himself in the trappings of a democratically elected leader uh, by, by the Senate. 
he 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 called himself the the first citizen, the princeps. Yeah. Um, and he he always made these overtures, like you talked about with with Claudius. Of, oh no, I'll just uh, I, I'm willing to give back power at any minute. All you need to do is ask me. Now yeah. it's all a facade. Later, um, uh, about a century or two later, um, there's another period of turmoil, and a guy called Septimus Severus takes over the empire, and he runs it effectively as a military t- dictatorship, and it's a kind of fuzzy position, right? So he's obviously a military dictator, but at the same time, he hasn't quite gotten rid of all these republican trappings as well. Then finally, we get to Diocletian. The Diocletian says, you know what, this, these trappings are useless. This is why everyone kills the emperor all the time, because they think he's just some dude. Yeah. I'm going to behave like a god, like a lord. And unlike Caligula, who's kind of just gone mad and declared himself a god, Diocletian yeah. does it very in a very cynical, rational way. He says, okay, I'm going to... Everyone has to crawl before me when they come to greet me. Uh, I'm going to sit in dark rooms on a huge throne with, like, uh, you know, uh, standing over people. So awe-inspiring. I'm going to keep the trappings yeah. and everything. People have to call me Lord Dominus. Uh... I'm going to be your supreme ruler on earth and I'm going to decide everything for your life. Uh, and the Senate, the Senate will simply agree to what I say. Um, I won't even pretend to ask them anymore, really. Uh, and that doesn't stick entirely. Like, there's a bit of a transition thing there. But from that point on, basically Roman emperors who continue on in Constantinople in the east uh, for the next, like, thousand years, they follow that mode of doing things. And so it is a very... Um, stable system yeah. to have your sort of supreme ruler at the top. And you can see very much how Ramaphosa with his big popularity and uh, his kind of, the fact that he's been considered by so many in the, the commentary class as this kind of indispensable man, that when he goes, for whatever reason, people will simply look for the next indispensable man. And someone yeah. like David Mabuza is just sitting there in the wings, ready to assume the throne as the new Dominus of South Africa. And so David Mabuse has been in the news this week because the ANC NEC declared that he's not been cleared of his corruption charges. But here's something that's very interesting, which is, I mean, how how different was South Africa? It's, I think a big problem that we have is the soft bigotry of low expectations. When Nick and I were in high school in the mid-2000s, the big story, in fact, when he was in grade eight and I was in matric in 2007, the big story of the day was that Jacob Zuma had been... If his 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 accountant Shabir Sheikh had been found to be in a corrupt relationship to do with the arms deal, and so there's very strong prima facie evidence that you know the guy whose accounts he was running was in a in a corrupt relationship because Shabir Sheikh had no favors to give. Only Zuma had favors to give in terms of that that case. And uh, what happened was exactly what you would expect to happen: a strong enough appearance of of corruption is there. Uh, the courts are pursuing the case. Uh, the national prosecuting authority is pursuing the case this is hard to do against a sitting incumbent president who is in the executive uh, and so is in charge of law enforcement effectively so the president fires him and says look if you can clear your name then you can come back to the fold but if you can't clear your name then you need to go and you need to have a fair trial which means uh, you can't be the sitting deputy president Ramaphosa has not only not done that not one South African has called for it to happen I haven't seen anyone even suggest it's just unthinkable to us now. It's outside of the Overton window. So that's a problem. And the problem that it leads to 
is another thing that Robert Graves, Robert Graves is very preoccupied with, particularly with Tiberius. So Tiberius becomes Caesar after Augustus. So it's Julius, then Augustus, and then Tiberius. And Tiberius isn't as talented. He was uh, much less beloved than Germanicus, who might have become Caesar instead, who'd been a very popular general, who'd, who'd uh, achieved great victories in Germany. And uh, Tiberius, you know, there's this question, how does Caligula ever become emperor? He wasn't, he wasn't exactly everyone's first pick. He was very young. He wasn't, the bloodlines were a bit confusing, but it, it, he didn't necessarily have the strongest claim to the throne, but Tiberius sort of elects him from within the family, nominates him to be his heir apparent. And on Graves' reading, this is very cynical. His thought is, I want to be beloved after I die. I want to be enshrined as a god myself, ex post, as Augustus was after he dies, when he can no longer refuse the title. And so I want to be succeeded by someone who's clearly not as good as me, who clearly won't be as popular as me. So you this foiling to make a contrast to make my flatter myself by sitting next to someone who's really a tyrant and really crazy and really stupid and this seems to be sort of Ramaphosa's best hope for having a legacy of fond remembrance is that after he steps down there's chaos because he's no longer there to hold it all together with the sort of film of hypocrisy where he can say things like I want expropriation without compensation and half the country believes he doesn't mean it and half the country believes he does and both love him for their own interpretation of that utterance. Uh, now reality starts to hit the wall and to replace him you have a blatantly corrupt guy like uh, David Mabuza or you have of course Nadlamini Zuma coming up who's super uncharismatic and is closely connected with the Zuma clan or you have some third party that no one knows and for that very reason is considered to be a, a bit of an upstart and so won't be as popular as Ramaphosa was and so when things start going wrong they'll be like ah oh, do you remember how wonderful it was when we still had Saint Cyril in charge yeah, he was, and this he was is the last great ruler of South Africa the, the last great emperor of Rome and and this is you know this is just exactly the wrong way the, the whole point of constitutional democracy is it's not just to find peaceful ways of transferring power, because as the Diocletian case shows, emperors can also peacefully transfer their power. Caligula also could have, uh, uh, Claudius also could have peacefully transferred his power. It's that once that power is peacefully transferred, it's stable. And to have that, it must always be the case that at some level we're, 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 we're holding the leader to account to be like, are you making yourself irreplaceable? Are you setting yourself up to be succeeded by someone who's not as good? And this is, and I mean, we've, we've got a small version of what's been going on in Russia today, uh, but, or, or rather an early version. But, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin really was popular and really was good in the early 2000s. He did a lot of really good things, but he made himself irreplaceable and the Russian populace and the Russian press didn't call him out on that. And once you let people get away with that for long enough, then they really are irreplaceable. Then there really is no way to have change without destabilization and bloodshed and, 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 and a much was, worse successor. And it was exactly these lessons about ancient Rome and the way that power uh, can be centralized by, uh, by a single leader that uh, created the American Republic in the way it is. The founding fathers were big Roman history nerds and they read this stuff and they thought this is exactly how it could go wrong. We need to try and build a system to guard against it. Now, I think one of the perhaps slightly corrupting features of the system was the fact that they knew that the first president was going to be um, George Washington, which meant that they went a little bit softer on the presidency than perhaps they should have. Uh, and for a while it worked very well as intended because Congress was a legitimate body that worked properly 
Um, it was uh, a strong legislature that could do what it wanted. But in recent years, with the pull of, you know, uh, a very lucrative speaking gigs on TV news and that kind of thing, uh, a lot of people go into Congress as a stepping stone for their career in media. Yeah. And as a result, the American president has become a sort of supreme ultimate power in in America. They talk about yeah. the imperial in the presidency. world, not just yeah. in America, in the world. Yeah. 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 And when you started getting a sort of activist Supreme Court, uh, it all it all starts falling apart. So yeah, maybe we're in a bit of a Diocletian moment, and that's and that's not a great thing. It's just to say that it doesn't mean that the end is nigh. It just means the end of if, what was. It's the beginning of the uh, end, though. Let's put it like that. There we go. Because yeah. uh, in a lot As of ways, for the, West, for the Western half of the empire, Diocletian was the beginning of the end. Um, he stabilizes it for a bit, but after that, it really it's it's a it's a bumpy cart that goes downhill and there's a couple of chances to turn back but they're very far and few between and eventually the whole thing falls apart um what about 170 years after he's he's dead uh speaking of imperial presidencies and stuff we should talk about this before we go before we uh finish for today which is of course the american election which is something we used to talk a lot about but due to covid and a lot of other interesting things going on all around the world uh We've kind of put on the back burner. Um, but according to a lot of polling data in the United States, uh, Trump is not doing well. He's doing worse against Joe Biden than he did against Hillary Clinton in the polls. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, of course, an election that he won by a very, very narrow margin. It's something like 50,000 votes or something in three states, um, which in an election of like, you know, 100 million people is nothing. Uh, and he looks set up to be worse. Now, of course, there could always be some great flaw in the polling that no one has detected. Uh, some people have argued that, oh, there's lots of secret Trump voters because to even mention that you support Trump can get you to lose your job these days. Um, I think, I don't, I'm not sure if I buy that argument, but it's an argument out there. Um, but uh, you say, I, I just want to say, because I am interested in that argument, uh, I'm, I'm not certain, but I think that um on the margins is is where it counts right so there's a lot of uh avid trump supporters who are very happy to wear maga hats uh but there are a lot of people it's it's at that little you know it's that five percent in the middle that are most likely to be people who are working in uh very lefty kind of academic institutions or corporate inst- or corporates or working for the government itself and so there's a question of uh, about why you would lie to a pollster if if it's anonymous, um, and and that certainly means that if it is an effect, I imagine it's only a couple of points, but a couple of points might make the difference between uh, yeah one outcome. So, so we we know that it probably at least happens to a small degree, but the question is, is it of the magnitude uh, that would be necessary That's, to flip things, and yeah. it's. That, it's that difficult seems to see that it is, yeah. yeah. Um, especially because he's sort of six points ahead in the national polls and in every single swing state except North Carolina, which is now also a swing state, apparently, uh, he's doing very well. So you, you mean, and by he, you mean Biden? Uh, Biden, yeah, which is, I think, something no one saw coming, even uh, even as I thought it would be a, a much closer in the polls this, this far after yeah. the election. 
Yeah. But, uh, but we didn't see COVID coming in. And one of the consequences of the COVID crisis is firstly to suck up a lot of airtime in a way that's been very unfortunately politicized. So you've got people who sort of are very anti, who, who blame Trump for everyone who died because lockdown didn't come soon enough, but sort of are overlook New York State's governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, uh, sort of uh, talking up, uh, keeping businesses open and going to restaurants until the very last minute. Uh, so, so, so it's like you know, figure out what your view is on the science and then blame people accordingly. No, that theory hasn't played out. It's rather just like blame one side or the other side, depending on what side you really have allegiance to, which I think is silly. But other than uh, sucking up airtime in a way that hasn't been particularly productively used to do what the public should do, which is figure out what's happened and who should we blame and who should we reward. It's also meant that there haven't been uh, debates and rallies in the ways that you would expect. And that has shielded Biden, whose I think biggest yeah. weakness is his public speaking. Uh, yes. Because where he has had public speaking opportunities, well, he's often been uh He doesn't come across well at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although someone someone has said that um, he's better if you read the transcript. I haven't gone and done this scientifically myself, but the claim is that uh, he sounds like a confused old man who's wandering in the woods. But if you actually go and read the text of what he said, it's not so bad, <laughs> which is a little bit like uh, the George W. Bush problem, which is that Bush right. always sounded like some sort of confused cowboy who really had no idea what was going on. Um, but then when you actually read the text of his speech, you were like, hey, this is pretty good. The other thing is that it's not clear what Americans are going to, on the basis of what Americans are going to vote. So they are looking at regrowing their economy after the decimation of uh, growth uh, due to the plague. And I suppose the Democrats and the Republicans offer very different views on how that ought to, ought to be achieved. The Democrats sort of seem to want a, a, a Green New Deal that's also very red, um, free university, cancel trillions of dollars worth of student debt. So it's a lot of sort of borrow and spend uh, from a government point of view uh, as, a, as a way to get out of it, uh, which I must admit, unlike many of my colleagues, I do think that there's room for some Keynesian uh, stimulus and in, in certain contexts. I think what makes me very wary of, of that kind of approach in the American context is the 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 particular value that the dollar plays, the particular value role that the dollar plays both in American economics and in global economics. So America gets away with printing money in a way like no one else while not undergoing inflations for the particular uh, velocities that you're dealing with, partly because the dollar is a safe haven bet at all times for all institutions and governments that really want to secure asset and at crisis times for everyone else who suddenly is worried about losing their money on the stock exchange. Um, so, you know, if you've got a $24 trillion bond market, something like that, at least $7 trillion is owned directly by other governments. Uh, and that's just not true uh, at the same scale of any, as, as, as anywhere else. But as we talked about on a Daily Friend podcast, you've got the EU, uh, which now wants to fund its 2.2 trillion euro stimulus package through EU sovereign bonds, which they haven't done at that scale before. You've got China declaring that it's no longer buying federal reserves. You've got a lot of 
this thing that people have talked about in monetary circles for the last decade of like trying to pull away from the dollar as the globe's reserve currency and get a instead of having a unipolar having a multipolar world of monetary uh, 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 markets uh, that's going to have that's going to that's going to expose America to risks of inflation that I think are, are much greater than they would otherwise have been, and 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 in particular to the kinds of inflation that have very negative economic consequences. Uh, if you have so when bond when bond bubbles burst, uh, you know now Ferguson's theory, this other Hoover Institute historian. His theory is that if you want to understand what happened in 1789 in France, you've got to understand what is happening in the French bond markets in the decades before that. You had a huge bubble and then a huge burst, and that really changed the middle class's attitude towards government in a way that uh, set up the guillotine falling. Um, I think that uh, you, 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 you have something similar going on in the 1930s uh, when American uh, uh, bonds of, in a different way, the Fed actually increases interest rates, uh, but it, it it bursts the the, the 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 bubble again in the sense that no one wants to buy these bonds anymore, uh, and the financial institutions have been frozen up. So you 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 get a freeze. Uh, e either way, you get a freeze in the markets, and 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 that is a perfect setup for uh, fascism. In, in one of the markets which was most affected, which is Germany. So I think that I'm very skeptical about America taking the democratic kind of spend more option, but it's not entirely yeah. clear that that's the, that that's the, you know, that would definitely be what Biden has on offer if he makes Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris his deputy president. Well, but if he makes someone like Amy Klobuchar his deputy president, then they might have a much more sensible kind of balance yeah. of stim of fiscal stimulus and although uh, it, it probably won't be her because i think she's actually kind of stepped back from the whole thing i think she's basically said oh it's not going to be me i'm not don't want it uh, i'm doing something else so who's um, me uh klobuchar yeah I, um I but there, there's a couple of others who are a little bit similar to that who who, who might work um I, I one of the so so as far as i'm concerned though the two parties in the u.s have, have gotten very uncreative with their solutions the dem solution to everything seems to be some version of redistribute wealth. So even the Green New Deal, it's supposed to be this thing about with a focus on, uh, or at least it was originally sold as a focus on, we're going to change the whole uh, economy to be like super green and environmentally friendly, and that'll be the focus of everything. But most of it is actually, as you say, it's tinged with a with a fair degree of red. It's like, um, oh, it's all about redistributing wealth and giving free healthcare, and that's actually the core of the program and the the, the head of what's it. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was one of the big faces behind the thing, her campaign yeah. said, oh, you guys thought that was an environmental thing? Ha, huh, well, uh, and actually it's more of an economic justice thing from our perspective. Yeah. Uh, so that's them just kind of going to the well of their, their, their fringes also, there. To be like, also, as, as, what as, a, as a brief sidebar, so I just read the Mail and Guardian's piece on IMF's loan to South Africa. And they were like, this is crazy because it's just going to make the government smaller and that's going to mean 300,000 people lose their jobs and how can you do that when we've already got such high unemployment? Much better alternative would be a Green New Deal that is very red. That's, <laughs> that's their phrase. It's in yeah, black that's, and white. That's, uh, that's their friendly phrase. And the Republicans, like, sometimes they get rid of regulations, but even then they're not 
entirely sold on that. Like I think it was it was Republicans who tried to ban vaping, for example, in the US yeah. effectively. Um, and so they the only thing that the Republican Party can agree on to do in any economic situation is we should cut taxes. Yeah. Which is something they do all the time. And I look, I'm in favor of cutting taxes, generally speaking, but like there's there are complicated problems with the American economy that another tax cut is probably not going to necessarily solve. Yeah. Um, or at least it'll need to be part, the tax cut will need to be part of something else. But what's been interesting to me is how uh, basically American politics, and I think a lot of global politics right now, it's so polarized, we talk about this every now and again. Uh, no one seems to agree on anything. Everyone's too far apart from each other. Except in one field, there is convergence. And that is that China is bad and a threat. A majority of both parties now believe uh, a yeah. healthy majority of both parties now believe that China is is a is a problem on the world stage. And by and by China, we mean Beijing, the, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party of China. Specifically, we do not mean Hong Kong. We do not mean we Taiwan. Not mean Taiwan. No, we do not mean Singapore. Um, and with this shift, we're now actually beginning to see something interesting, which is reminiscent of the Cold War, but I think is a good thing for liberty and democracy around the world, which is that the two candidates are pretending to be the most or playing to be the most anti-china candidate in a lot of yeah. ways um biden's trying to do it in a way that sounds friendlier to his base who are more sensitive about you know being racist to china or something like that which is something a stupid line of argument you come you see all the time in in, in the political sphere um and trump's of course this is one of the things he got elected on was uh, i'm gonna beat china and uplift the working uh, white working middle uh, working class so uh, i think that that's pretty positive development amongst all the the gloom and doom is that they're looking at the communist party of china and they're seriously recognizing the threat that it presents to themselves and to the sort of liberal world order writ large for reasons that are very much like what we were talking about in ancient rome irreplaceable leadership irreplaceable party Unaccountability as a result, excuses that need to be made for human rights violations, for anti-competitive behaviors, for theft of intellectual property. So, but I must say, I do and think of that- course, so in, uh, one more thing, the, the, the accelerating abuse of human rights in China. So this is, you know, we're seeing human rights abuses now in China that we haven't seen since Mao, um, yeah. which is a very disturbing thing. So I, I will say that I think uh, the TikTok the, ban, the proposed ban on TikTok is, it seems ill-considered to me. I think the fundamentals are probably right. Uh, from a political point of view, the timing seems off. Uh, I think that yes. the Republicans uh, and the Republican candidate, the current president, uh, would do much better to sort of maintain an unambiguous attitude towards free speech. Like right now really is not the time to be joining cancel culture and to be joining deplatforming and to be joining sort of bans on various platforms. I think say that till after the election. I think his two, the two biggest strategic mistakes that Trump seems to be making at the moment are trying to cancel TikTok as, as a way of showing that he's more anti-China than Biden. And uh, secondly, to discuss delaying the election, uh, which just seems like a, a very easy way to uh, portray yourself as a crazy person who is trying to be a bit of a Diocletian yourself. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's what he is. And if that's what he is, then 
then probably you should vote for the Democratic candidate, even if they are going to borrow America into catastrophe. I mean, I'm not sure, but I think you can't you can't have a, a would be tyrant uh, in the White House. Let me read you a tweet, which is an alternative theory on why Trump floated that balloon about, uh, and we'll talk about the specifics of it in a second, um, about possibly delaying the election. So the tweet reads as follows. Horrible GDP numbers come out. The American GDP was like, I think, down by 32% quarter on quarter, something like that. Um, glass shattering sound. President Trump pulls special phone out from shards of glass, tossing aside break for emergency distraction signed. Hits send on delay the election trial balloon tweet. So what what's happening here is the, 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 this guy is claiming that Trump basically tweeted that as a way to distract people from what he thinks are presidency ending uh, GDP numbers. Do you think, do you buy that theory at all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's entirely plausible. I think that Trump sort of looks at rating numbers on TV shows and Twitter likes and I think he's reading all kinds of currents in the esteem market and he tries to bet on that basis. But I think this sounds to me like being too clever by six. Uh, yeah, very much so. Where, well, I where, think, I think, I think it might be the, the opposite, which is that not clever enough because it's, it's, it's not subtle, really. It's like, here's a thing, right? So, so the important thing about Trump talking about delaying the election is he personally has no power to do it. He would have to get Congress to do it. And already the entire is, Republican leadership of Congress has just been like, nah, no. So if his own party's not behind him, then this is never going to happen. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, now these. It's it's it, the idea is that he's floating a trial balloon to get everyone into an argument about something that's not a real problem. And Trump does this all the time. He'll say, "Oh, we should, you know, send. I should I should personally fire uh, chimpanzees into the sun." Let's just say, and then everyone will argue about you know whether it's a good idea to fire chimpanzees into the sun. Never mind the fact that Trump actually has no cannon to do which to do such with. Yeah. Um, and as a result, things. Dude, I think that's a great example. Frenzy. Because <laughs> uh, that would result, work, think, and that's not yeah, 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 more exactly. crazy than anything that it has already. Worked. No, no. If he didn't say that tomorrow, we would get literally think pieces in the New York yeah. Times about how this is the worst thing an American president has ever suggested doing. <laughs> yeah, and Breitbart would probably publish a think piece being like, "Guys, this is exactly what we need to do." It would demonstrate American power. <laughs> yes, this will really show. Oh, the Chinese. Exactly. <laughs> Proving that, um, well, uh, there's, there's definitely something I think that's true about America. I, you know, I, I think we can agree that Trump isn't necessary for America to survive. Um, but what we can probably agree is the current way that news media and commentary is working in the U.S. does need Trump to survive at the moment because yeah. it's so much of the business model of everyone has become centered around whether you're anti-Trump or pro-Trump. The New York Times yeah, saw surges in its in its sales because it's gone super, super anti-Trump and kind of work. Yeah. Uh, whereas at the same time, places on the right, uh, Fox, for example, Fox News has seen surges in its numbers because it's gone super pro-Trump or, you know, One American News, which is that other weird little station that Trump loves to trumpet every now and again. Um, and this is a business model that with him at the center of politics is probably going to need to be changed if he loses the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be a big change. Let's talk about an even bigger change to wrap up the show. 
which is which is a bit of good news. My favorite bit of good news for the week, which is that ISA has become a stem has initiated its assembly of a nuclear fusion reactor. ISA stands for the future for, is here. Yeah. So basically, the idea is uh, that the sun works by smashing together very little atoms, hydrogen atoms, and then they become helium. And one helium weighs slightly less than two hydrogens, and the excess, that difference in mass gets translated directly into energy. And this is an order of magnitude more energy efficient than a nuclear bomb. Uh, You know, every time you split a uranium atom, which is very large atom. So the sun is the most powerful, bestest thing we know in the universe for creating energy. And so, uh, you know, people like Jimmy Carter have always thought, well, why don't we just gather the energy from the sun? And then we can power up everything on Earth. Uno problemo. The sun is very far away. Very far away. So by the and time its energy atmosphere gets here, between us and it, it gets very diluted by the time it gets here. Even without the atmosphere, even if you set up a solar cell just by the moon, it's far away. And it's 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 geometric because it's because the sun's energy is going in every direction. Every kilometer you add. Uh, the volume that that energy is being distributed over goes up exponentially, geometrically. So much better would be to create a very little sun uh, that's very, very close. And this is what fusion does. And this technology, the idea of this technology has been around since fission was around. Um, Because it's so hot, a sun, a little mini sun on Earth is very hot. We don't know how to hold it. So a Soviet guy, Shostakovich, I think, uh, figured out that what you need is like basically a magnet uh, that's shaped like a donut, and then you can h- hold, but with it hollowed out in the middle. So it's like imagine a donut, but the magnet is everywhere that the donut isn't. So you've got this tube essentially going around of emptiness inside a big magnetic casing, and uh, if you po- pass enough current through that magnet, you make it strong enough. You can the the magnetic forces can hold the the donut-shaped sun inside of there, and ISA is by far the largest project to build a tokamak, and the idea is to reach ignition. So we've already built little miniature suns. Uh, we've we've got them to last for at least six minutes, I think, or longer in Japan, uh, for since 2003. Uh, but the idea is to get it to the point where you get more energy out of it than you have to put into it. You have to put the energy into it to heat up the hydrogen, to get them bounce around, to heat up the magnet, to get it to hold the thing together. And ISA looks like it might be able to do that. And it's been under construction for about a decade. But finally, they're actually assembling the parts, which have been built by 35 countries, representing more than half of the globe's population. Uh, To give you one sense, like altogether, it weighs two or three times as much as the Eiffel Tower. Uh, Its cost as of 2015 it's kind of impossible to evaluate because it's so complicated that they invented their own units of currency, the ITER, the ITER units of account, which came before Bitcoin, by the way, and is kind of blockchain managed. Um, it weighs twice as much as the Eiffel Tower. It's got there's there's a small problem, which is that if the ma- the magnets have to be super cooled, by the way, which is another energy drain, uh, to if they get above minus 270 degrees, then they stop working as superconductors. And then they stop working as super magnets. And then you've got like, I don't know, 8.7 billion gajillion kilojoules of energy that suddenly wants to go somewhere. So there's all kinds of ways that it could blow up. 
which is a bit scary. So we, we hope it works. But here's the point. If it does work, it produces basically limitless energy from the world's most abundant material. The waste product is, is nothing harmful at all. It's basically just helium and water. And if one of these, if we if we prove the concept and then build a few, if one of them ever does blow up, it'll be a big kablawi, be like a couple of jumbo jets crashing into each other. But there's no nuclear waste, so it's so it's not like it has that particular kind of damage. So it is the most promising technology. And we were talking about going to Mars a couple of podcasts ago. And some people thought we were a bit crazy, and we sort of tried to explain why we weren't being too crazy. But this is the kind of technology which, in which, if this works in our lifetime, will change. Everything. It really will change everything, including our ability yeah. to travel to space, including like our politics. The, it'll be like the invention of agriculture. That's like mm. how big it'll be. Yeah, it'll be like planting seeds. Like, yeah, by the way, agriculture is just the earliest solar panel exercise, right? The sun makes the energy and then the plants uh, gather the energy and then we eat it and we're like, ha, ah, why don't we get a little bit closer to the sun by deliberately planting the plants that we like in the places we like and then breeding them to make them even more like we like. And, and since then, everything that we've done has been getting closer and closer to the sun. Uh, coal, oil, fracking, natural gas, these are all ways of getting to energy sources that have effectively been created by the sun. But this would be the first time that we actually create the sun. And it's a Copernican revolution. Remember that science, in a way, starts with the thought that we are the center of the universe. And then you have this great leap forward where we realize the sun's the center of the universe. And then we realize, no, it's just the center of the solar system. But this would be a nice unwind of being like, well, no, actually, we're bringing the center of the universe back, a little bit back to us by making the sun on, on, on Mother Earth. And I think that'd be jolly brilliant. Anyway, so I'm very excited. Yeah. And it's oh, a, it's a thing cool. to keep following. Um, maybe it won't work. To keep following. Maybe, it, maybe it won't work. But, uh, you know, with all these big scientific projects, you almost always discover some interesting, useful stuff along the way that becomes useful. Uh, even if it's a total kind of failure. I mean, the, the space shuttle is a really great example of this. As a, I can't remember all the inventions that came from it, but basically NASA invested huge amounts of money in the space shuttle craft that can go to space and come back. And um, it turns out that a lot of that use, information was really useful for stuff outside of, you know, space yeah. shuttling. Uh, there's lots of civilian uses for and, it. And by the way, one, one of the big complaints from the ITA guys is like, people are like, oh, but it costs so much money and what if it doesn't work? And they're like, well, if you compare us, this is a moonshot. In fact, this is a sunshot. We try to get to the moon uh, and we got there. Here we're trying to bring a little bit of the sun back to Earth. And uh, so far, ITA's cost about a fifth of the Apollo programs just going up to Apollo 11 or Apollo 13, whichever was the one that made it. Apollo 11. Apollo so 11, it's... Yeah. It's 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 cost much less so far than uh, than our moon exploration. Yeah, no, this is actually an interesting thing about space exploration. Is it's you know considering how much money governments these days waste on everything and anything. Um, you can go and look up, for example, uh, go and look up some articles on uh, what does the federal government spend money on because the libertarians in America churn these out like at an enormous pace, and it's like. Uh, you know, $14 million for studying the effects of cocaine on hamsters kind of stuff. Or, yeah. uh, you know, a study into... Which, by the way, is very interesting. I've read cocaine on hamster studies, which are pretty good. They're kind of interesting, right? But, like, you know, they all all get huge government grants to do this kind of stuff. Or there'll be, like, a, you know, um, a study into the effects of 
various sexual transmitted diseases on Venezuelan transgender prostitutes who are also cocaine addicts, no, not cocaine addicts, um, heroin addicts. And, you know, that'll be like another $30 million. So when you start to realize how much fat there is in the government, you realize that if we just, if we just, and, and all governments do this, not just theirs. I mean, South Africa's government yeah. also, but that, that, that's basically all our spending is, <laughs> it's got a lot of fat in it. So, um, but if you just cut some of the fat, yeah. you can yeah. probably find the money to fund these kind of programs and the benefits are enormous. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think we should, uh, we should wrap it up there. Uh, Gabriel, yeah. any recommendations, anything you think people should do, read, think about? I've got one. Uh, you start. Yeah. Uh, so there's a topic that I'm very fascinated by, and it's maybe something we can talk about on a future show, which is it's called the Bronze Age Collapse, uh, basically about, what is it, 3,000 years ago, around the year 1,200 BC. Um, all the civilizations around the Mediterranean, Egypt, the Hittites, the Mycenaean Greeks, within a generation, they went from a pretty stable system of heavily trading big militarized empires uh, who uh, who had a lot of cities? They all those cities crumbled, the population went way down, and technology and society collapsed to some enormous degree. It was like a real, real dark age. Uh, the Greeks even forgot how to write. Um, Jeez, so <laughs> it was a pretty big deal. Uh, you can look up some YouTube videos on it. There's some really great ones, uh, cool lecture and stuff, and it's pushed um, knowledge forward a lot in the realm of. How do societies actually collapse? Because this is an interesting question. You know, how does a pretty robust, successful society that lasts for maybe centuries or even millennia suddenly just come to such a grinding halt? Mm. And of course, mm. the fall of Rome is in some ways arguably a little bit of the same thing, although not on the same scale. And people are all are fascinated by this because they're always predicting that it's going to another version of this is just around the corner, right? Yeah. Uh, and when you have global pandemics and looming war between superpowers, one begins to kind of wonder if the same thing might might be about to occur. Um, so check that out. Uh, that's pretty cool, pretty interesting. Um, do you have anything, Gabriel? Yeah. So my my favorite week. Uh read of today part of the presses is an article by um Bida Stadler of an immunologist at the University of Bern Switzerland uh and basically uh, the article is called coronavirus why everyone was wrong and this immunologist basically says you know I we have we have given over this debate from the beginning to epidemiologists and virologists and so there's this basic idea that many people have come to believe that people don't have uh, natural immunity or don't have immunity because of other coronaviruses. We think of this coronavirus as a completely new thing. Uh, but Bida uh, lays out various reasons to think that uh, that was a false assumption. This is not entirely new. Uh, Stadler does write as if it's entirely new, but of course many people have been talking about uh, immunity, uh, latent immunity. Uh, but I think this is extremely, it's very bitingly written. It's quite funny. There's some there's some zingers in there, uh, which are are memorable. And, uh, and, the, and the argument is worth considering, seriously. I think it's a little bit overstated, but it's worth checking out if you want a hot take. Uh, yeah, and, I've also read that. It's, um, it is, I agree completely with that assessment. It is a bit of a hot take, um, but there is useful stuff in there. Yeah. And then Rafi Kachaturian uh, is the New Yorker writer who wrote 
an article called The Star in a, in a Bottle in 2014. And that's about ITA. And that's where I first came to, to know about ITA. And I've been following it for the last six years. As a result, I think it's a really beautiful survey of the story. And it's my second favorite nonfiction piece ever to appear in the New Yorker magazine. So check that out. Star in a Bottle, New Yorker 2014 by Rafi Kachaturian. And if you don't want to read that, if you want to read my favorite, um, it's Hannah Arendt on the Eichmann trials uh, in, the, in the 50s, which I think is uh, one of the most profound bits of sort of a combination of journalism and uh, human philosophy to understand what was going on in Israel when they had their first Nazi to try uh, a few years after the Holocaust. Really harrowing. Very long series, uh, but truly worth the read. Cool. Sounds awesome. Um, and I think we'll call it to a close there. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you around on the next episode. Uh, become a friend of the IRR. Uh, and thank you to all of you who already are friends of the IRR. Read The Daily Friend. Um, and keep the flag of liberty flying. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>